to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 75, Pope Theodore the First. Teddy! Yeah, this is definitely a name that we have some attachment to. I don't know if it's good or <laughs> bad or and continually changes because now we have Teddy and Theodore. Yeah. Mm, D&D is a thing. It is. I, I still can't get over that like we had Teddy in our last campaign, and now this campaign we have Theodore. Not played by the same person, but, like, wouldn't you pick a completely different name? I think he did it on purpose, because the DM keeps going, Teddy, because he means Theodore. Mm -hmm. And Theodore keeps going, Theodore. So it's definitely on purpose. <laughs> While we jump into this here, a couple things up top in this episode. First of all... Fry and I are both sick, and so if we sound nasally or raspy or anything, we apologize, but we also are powering through to bring you content so that there is not another dark week. <laughs> a dark week, like a dark lunch. <laughs> like, second thing is, you may hear a dog barking in the background of my recording. If you do not follow us on... Twitter or any of our social media, you might have missed that my dog for the last two weeks has been in and out of hospital, had emergency surgery, wouldn't eat for 12 days, and it's been a nightmare. But he is now feeling very much up to his normal self, and part of that is barking at anybody who walks by the door. And yeah, he will not be stopped right now. He's just making up for all of the times that he was silent and sick and in pain. So if you hear that, I'm sorry. We'll do our best in the editing, but it's just kind of where we are right now. Uh, chaos. Yeah, it's been a, a, a long two weeks, and it's been longer since we've recorded. So let's do the thing. Theodore was born in Jerusalem, and his father, also called Theodore, was a bishop and assistant to the Patriarch of Jerusalem, called Stephen of Dora. His family was of Greek heritage, which is fairly common for the inhabitants of the Levant region at this time. However, what happens in his early life was anything but common, because in 638, the Muslim Caliphate conquered the Levant, and many Christians were forced out, including Theodore and his family. And because Theodore's father was a member of a church, that is how they decide to go to Rome. Now, I just very quickly glossed over that whole Muslim conquest of the Levant thing. And since there's clearly been a lot going on outside the purview of our episodes since we mentioned the rise of Islam in Pope Honorius's episode, we should give this huge bit of world-changing, developing history its moment. And I do mean a very brief moment, because the history of Islam is extremely complex. But considering it's having a major impact on the life of this pope, we need to give it a bit of a look. The Muslim conquest of the Levant region happened in the early 600s, and was one of the first stages of Muslim expansion beginning in the last few years of the life of the Prophet Muhammad. 
Muhammad died in 632, and the first battles into the borders of the Levant started in 629. Although the majority of the offensive would occur under Muhammad's appointed successors, or caliphs, Abu Bakr and Umar ibn al-Khattab in 634. These two are the first caliphs of what is called the Rashidun Caliphate. This is very early days for Islam, and even earlier days for anything that's going to look like a unified Islamic nation or empire. So at this time, the Levant had been under Roman control since about 70 AD as part of Palestina, which were the provinces of Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And we had actually discussed the fall of Jerusalem in episode 7, Pope Evaristus's episode, and the Bar Kokhba revolt in episode 10, Telesphorus's episode. So basically, the Levant has been in Roman hands, give or take, since that time. But that's not to say it's entirely unbroken and uncontested, because the region was constantly under invasion from the Sassanid Persians, and only fairly recently had been under control by the Persians until Emperor Heraclius had reclaimed the region in the late 620s. But if we're trying to very, very, very much generalized, it could be traditionally thought of as an area that was at least under loose Roman-slash-Byzantine control. But because of that decade of Persian control before Heraclius, it's fair to say that the Byzantine control of that area at this time that we're talking about is not at its height, and that the last decade with Persian overseers had influenced the culture and the ethnic makeup and the governance and the ability to defend the region. We've already mentioned in various episodes how thinly stretched the empire already was. It's facing multiple threats in multiple locations. So what it could provide for the defense of the Levant was very spread out, totally insufficient, and mostly dedicated to staving off a Persian invasion. So when the Muslims showed up under the famed military commander Khalid ibn al-Walid, the Muslim forces were able to spread far, quickly, and they were able to catch the Byzantine forces unaware and underprepared. We're not going to go through this battle by battle, because it's very long and very complex, but the Muslims were successful at the Battle of Anjdain in 634, the Battle of the Mud in 635, they took Damascus in 636, Jerusalem in 638, and Caesarea in 640, leaving pretty much the majority of the region under control of the Muslim caliph Umar. Are we uh, losing the Byzantines now? Are we getting to that point? Not quite yet, but they are, they are losing this area. So the Levant is definitely no longer in Byzantine hands. As a result, many people are being driven out of their homes because of the ongoing conflict. And so all of this is the cause of Theodore's family either being forced out of Jerusalem or fleeing for their safety, one or the other. The war is coming, we should go. I mean, it's a pretty smart choice. If you see that an ongoing invasion is happening and they're being successful, might be time to leave. So they end up in Rome. 
And in Rome, Theodore quickly took up the career path of his father and entered the church. By 640, he was made a cardinal deacon by Pope John IV. He was elevated to a full cardinal by the end of the same year. And when John IV died at the end of October in 642, Theodore was elected to succeed him. This is a fairly quick rise to prominence, considering that he could have only been in Rome for like a maximum of four years, and that's only if his family had immediately vacated Jerusalem when the takeover occurred. That says a lot about what kind of person he must have been. Good at it. Good at it. Charismatic. Made a good impression. All of those things. Now, once again, the gap between his election and his consecration is fairly short, which suggests that the exarch was the one to supply imperial confirmation rather than the emperor. And it's also suggested that the exarch supported him even more to be the next pope because of his Greek heritage. So he's consecrated as pope within a month of his election on November 24th of 642. It's fairly quick, considering we were having, like, nine-month-long sede vacantes and year-long or a year and a half. It's some improvement. And like Theodore's predecessor, the main issue of his papacy is going to be monothelitism. Despite Pope John's efforts to settle the matter once and for all by officially condemning monothelitism as heresy in his synod, and then Heraclius's abandonment of the ecthesis, it turned out that this issue was still far from over. Especially since, despite the fact that Heraclius had repudiated the ecthesis, it had never been formally removed, and therefore was still technically law. And this doesn't go well because the current bishop of Constantinople, a man called Pyrrhus I, was still a firm adherent of the ecthesis, and so the Pope ordered that he be deposed. You know, look, this guy, he is not on board with what we're all trying to do. Let's get rid of him. And since Pyrrhus was also accused of having plotted against Heraclius's successor, Constantine III, the Pope actually succeeds and Pyrrhus is removed from his bishopric in Constantinople in 645 and banished from the city. I mean, probably more for the plotting thing, but a deposition is a deposition, and this is good for the Pope. And Pyrrhus leaves Constantinople to end up in Carthage. So while in Carthage, the deposed bishop engaged in a public debate on monothelitism with Maximus the Confessor, who we've already mentioned a few times in the show. And during his debate with Maximus, with Maximus holding the orthodox, non-monothelite, diatholite position, he's actually able to win Pyrrhus over to his side. So Maximus is a very powerful force against monothelitism, and he actually convinced Pyrrhus that monothelitism and its belief in a single will of Christ doesn't hold up against the doctrine of the Incarnation and this orthodox understanding of the two natures of Christ as defined by the Chalcedonian definition. I hear you sighing. Yeah. I know. These people, they can't let it go. <laughs> Every time. 
But at least they've managed to convince this guy. He's not going to fight them. And he actually recants all of his former teachings and adopts the orthodox position. It's a win. This guy was the Bishop of Constantinople. He's now been kicked out of that role and he goes, man, I was wrong. And he even goes so far as to travel to Rome to make a public declaration of his orthodoxy to the Pope in 647. And when he arrives and he makes this declaration, the Pope agrees to reinstate him as the Bishop of Constantinople. And here we have an account from the Liber Pontificalis. Then Pyrrhus, the former patriarch of Constantinople, came from Africa to the homes of the apostles at Rome. On his arrival, he presented a signed acknowledgement to our apostolic see in the presence of the whole clergy and people, and in it he condemned everything written or done by himself or his predecessors against our unsullied faith. When he had done this, Theodore had him distribute gifts to the people and had a cathedra placed for him close to the altar, honoring him as the sacerdote of the imperial city. He gets to go back and be the Bishop of Constantinople again. Fancy. Yeah, it's looking good. This, this is papal primacy points here. However, very shortly after being reinstated, like literally while Pyrrhus is on his journey back to Constantinople, he hasn't even got there. He falls back into his old heresy. He recants his recantation. And he starts to loudly and boldly proclaim that Christ had a single will. Oh, no. Very loudly going, I'm back to my monothelite ways. Ah. And now the Pope is furious. And rather than just pushing for a deposition again, because he just gave this guy his job back, Theodore calls a synod in Rome in 648 and excommunicates Pyrrhus full stop. You don't get an extra chance with him. No, you had the one. You blew it. Here we go. So again, we have a segment from the Liber Pontificalis. Later on, he went back again like a dog to the vomit of his own impiety. Whoa! They love that metaphor when it comes to heresy. It's always dog vomit. Look, I don't have dogs, but you said your dogs eat their vomit, so I guess it's a thing. They 100% eat their vomit. Ridley, aside from being sick this whole two weeks when he would eat nothing at all, he will even eat Patch's vomit. If Patch throws up, he's like, I'm in it. That's mine. Get out of my way. Here I come to eat that. <laughs> he will literally come running. We're just like, ah, clean up crew. We just wait for it to happen. That's not food. And you can't stop him, right? It's, it's just he's on it so fast. You're just like, ah, okay, well, you're making my job easier. So, so the rest of this quote. Then the Holy Pope Theodore summoned all the sacerdotes and the clergy in the Church of St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, condemned him under the bond of an anathema, and assigned deposition as the canonical penalty, a suitable reward and retribution for his transgression, eating dog vomit. Excommunicated for eating dog vomit. Now, if we're to believe the Chronicle of Theophanes, who is full of some serious drama, he didn't just excommunicate the patriarch. He signed the document of excommunication with ink that contained Christ's blood from the sacred chalice. Oh yeah, the Pope means business. 
I have a I have a quote from Theophanes here. But when he had departed from Rome and came to Ravenna, he returned to his own vomit like a dog. There it is again. Upon learning this, Pope Theodore called together the full body of the church and proceeded to the tomb of the foremost apostle, where he asked for the holy chalice and dripping some of Christ's life-giving blood into the ink, signed with his own hand the condemnation of Pyrrhus and those who communicated with him. So I assume you like, God, is it the transmogrification? Is that what it is? Is that what it is? Potentially, we would think that that's kind of what's happening here, because the sacred chalice is supposed to contain the blood of Christ. Yeah, but only after they do the thing. So they must have done the thing, the, what's the word for it? Google will tell me. And they put it in ink to sign this excommunication because it's so Soros, Soros business. Oh, it's transubstantiation is what it is. Oh, okay. I thought that was with the with the Eucharist. No, it's both. The body and the blood, Brie. Well, no, it's it's still blood. It's not wine becoming blood. Oh, it's just blood. It's it's blood, yeah. It's blood that they're taking and then putting into the ink. Whose blood is it? It's not Jesus. It's Jesus's blood. I just assumed, like, I was going with the, oh, they poured some wine in here, and then they went, huh, it's Jesus's blood, and then they wrote with that. Now, now they're getting blood from somewhere. This is the sacred chalice that captured his blood when it fell from the sword wound. You know, the holy grail? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, transubstantiation is, is like body and blood mm -hmm. of Christ in the Eucharist. Now, this is where things get complicated and a little petty. More complicated than blood from nowhere. Yes, but definitely more petty than blood from nowhere. So, remember what we said in our last episode about the Empire having a succession crisis? This is where that comes back to play a little bit. So, to recap in a, in a very small diversion... Emperor Heraclius died. His successor Constantine III was emperor for about four months before he died of tuberculosis. And his co-emperor slash successor Heraclonus died after a military coup led by a general called Valentinus. Now, Valentinus had installed Constantine III's son, Constans II, on the throne. But then he tried to, like, take over from Constans, the one he put there, and also gets killed. So now Constans too is our current emperor. He's on the throne by himself, and he's a very young man, like late teens. A baby. He is baby emperor. Not the, not the youngest, by far not the youngest, but for this point in time, we have a very young and inexperienced emperor sitting on the throne by himself. After the deposition of Pyrrhus, the Eastern Church had selected a replacement patriarch known as Paul II of Constantinople. And Paul was in quite good with the emperor because Paul had resisted that usurper general Valentinus, and he'd even gone so far as to act as a regent for the young emperor Constans during the diciest of the political upheavals. So this is a man very well trusted by the emperor, and unlike Pyrrhus, Paul was not a monothelite, so he's an orthodox man, trusted by the emperor. They put him in as the bishop of Constantinople. It's good. 
It's a good win for the church on every front. However, Paul was very tolerant. He was not a strong opponent to monothelitism, and he practiced tolerance for the single-will theology rather than trying to stomp it out aggressively, mainly because the majority of the civil elites were still staunch monothletes. But, you know, it's, it's an orthodox man. He's in the highest position in Constantinople. He's kind of just letting the monothelite people do their thing so that he doesn't kick up a fuss. And Pope Theodore, who had now just excommunicated Pyrrhus, was none too pleased to hear that his successor, a bishop, an orthodox bishop, was tolerating monothelitism. Oh no. He's so over it, because he's like, this last guy, I got rid of him, he came to me, he told me he changed his ways, and then he, I sent him back, and he changed his mind again. So, this guy, if he's going to tolerate it, we're not going to have it. So he decides to not recognize Paul's election as valid on the grounds that there hadn't been a correct and proper replacement of Pyrrhus. So he's basically invalidating him on a technicality. And he says that he's going to continue to refuse to recognize Paul as the accepted bishop of Constantinople unless Constans, the emperor, legally withdrew the ecthesis and made the deposition of Pyrrhus one that was enshrined in law. Unfortunately, due to the political turmoil in Constantinople and the strong support for monothelitism in the secular elite, Theodore's refusal to recognize Paul and his demands are going largely ignored by the emperor and the patriarch. However, what Theodore's efforts does do is extend and strengthen the orthodox resistance to monothelitism across the remainder of the West, including Africa and Palestine, who start to become more outspoken in their condemnation of a single will. Even if Constantinople is ignoring the Pope, the rest of the church is behind him, and many of the African bishops are even writing to Paul, urging him to stand up for orthodoxy. Like, look, you're being too tolerant. You gotta double down on this. The African bishops even held a council in 646, led by Maximus the Confessor, which outright and in no uncertain terms condemned all monothelites' theology. And Theodore's not going to give up on Paul here. Even if he's refusing to legitimize the Patriarch of Constantinople, he's still writing letters pushing repeatedly for the Patriarch to make a declaration of the Orthodox faith. Come on, man, just do it. Do what you need to do. Show us that you can fight for the Orthodoxy, that you are worthy of this role. And then he gets a letter from Paul. And it is a declaration declaring that he is now a total adherent of monothelitism. He's been corrupted. It seems that he got tired of all the pushing and just decided he was going to double down in the opposite direction. Okay. Look, I was orthodox, but you pushed me, and you pushed me, and now I'm going to be one of these guys. Petty. So petty. It's petty on both sides now. And, and this is going to ramp things up. Ramp up the petty. They're going from passive-aggressive to actual-aggressive. They sure are. In response to this slap in the face, 
Pope Theodore imposes a sentence of excommunication on Paul in 649. We have the account of the Liber Pontificalis. Then the holy Pope Theodore wrote to Paul, patriarch of the imperial city, both requesting him and reproving him in accordance with the canons, and also through Apocrisarii, as had been mentioned, who were specifically delegated for this purpose in being present in person, admonished him and declared that he should correct his falsehood and return to the orthodox faith of the Catholic and Apostolic Church. Yet neither by request nor by reproof were they at all able to bring him back on his endeavor. On this account, he was struck by the Apostolic See with the just penalty of deposition. So, he has now been officially deposed by the Pope. And then Paul, in response to his excommunication, went berserk. He had the papal apocrisaries arrested and imprisoned, where they were subjected to extremely poor treatment. And then he goes into the Palace of Placidia, which is the residence of the papal apocrisarius while they're in Constantinople, and just starts smashing shit. Like you do. Yeah, he destroyed an entire altar inside of this place. He's not handling his anger well. And we also have an account of this, although if you're looking for it in the Liber Pontificalis, it appears incorrectly in the entry for the next pope rather than under Theodore. He went so far as to have the altar of our holy see, which had been consecrated in the venerable oratory in the house of Placidia, overthrown and destroyed, thus stopping our apocrisarii from offering to God their adorable and immaculate victim and receiving the sacraments of communion. Now in warning him to pull back from such a heretical purpose and in censuring him, these apocrisarii were following orders in an apostolic warrant. For this he variously persecuted them and other orthodox men in venerable sacerdotes. Some of them he confined in custody, some he sent into exile, others he subjected to the lash. He has just lost his mind about this. Apparently. And if that wasn't enough... He also seems to have had this thought that, look, fine, the Pope wants to get rid of the ecthesis that badly? Oh, we'll get rid of it then. Oh, no. So he goes to the emperor, who's already super, super worried about the political turmoil that was being caused by the theological debate. And he convinces him to remove the ecthesis, but only to replace it with a new decree, which will become known as the type of Constans. And the type of Constans basically puts a gag order on this whole thing. It forbade any further discussion on the wills or the energies of Christ or any other aspect of Christology on pain of imprisonment and punishment. He basically says, look, you guys are not allowed to talk about this at all. You're not allowed to stand up for what you believe in. Nobody is allowed to talk about this. That includes you, Mr. Pope Man. You can imagine how well this went down in the West. Poorly. So poorly. Theodore is outraged, and he absolutely refuses to accept the type. He issued a letter to the apocrisaries forbidding them to sign their assent, and he immediately began to call a council together to be held at the Lateran to anathematize this new decree, this type of Constance. No, we are condemning it right now, right here. But unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, as we may see, 
he was never able to attend this council because he died before it could fully be arranged. And all of this is going to be left for his successor. Oh, no. Oh, yes. A mess. Before we wrap up with his death and everything, in terms of the more ancillary aspects of his papacy, the Liber Pontificalis credits Theodore with being a generous benefactor to both the poor and the maintenance of churches, including building several oratories, like one for St. Valentine on the Via Flaminia, one to St. Sebastian inside the Lateran Basilica, one to St. Euplus outside the gate of the city. He was also said to have brought the relics of the martyrs of St. Primus and Felician from outside of the walls of Rome to be housed inside the Basilica of St. Stephen. And he conducted one round of holy orders in December to create 21 priests, four deacons, and 46 bishops. But then he died on May 14th of 649 of natural causes. Or was it? It was aggressive. They threw him out a window. Well, Wendy G. Reardon's book suggests that perhaps he was poisoned due to his Ugh, deposition and excommunication of Paul. No other sources that I read seem to suggest that this is the case, but considering the conflict was left entirely up in the air with his death and how things are going to progress, it's possible. He was buried in the atrium of Old St. Peter's. His tomb was destroyed for new St. Peter's, but an inscription from his tomb survives. It's very short. It says only, the body of Theodore, the kind distinguished bishop, lies in this tomb. You know, all this, this thing was destroyed for the new St. Peter's. I feel like the people building that building should have really been more like popes. That's important. Right? It's mind-boggling to me that so many tombs were destroyed. And it's mind-boggling to me that only a couple of them were saved. What is the logic at that point? To be like, I'm going to save this guy, but mm, not those other seven. Did Marie Kondo go back in time <laughs> and go, does this bring you joy? Well, right now it doesn't. <laughs> Maybe that's what happened. These popes got condoed away. Oh, it's a thought. I mean... Maybe they were the ones with the best inscriptions, but some of them don't even have inscriptions. This one's not very good. But then again, it was destroyed. So, so that's Theodore. And now it's time to rate him. Papatum and Phallium. Aggressively. Yeah, well, I mean, that is part of this discussion here. There is some aggression to it. He stood very strong against the ecthesis against monothelitism, against unorthodox bishops in Constantinople, all the way to the point of being petty. Although, when we look at how Paul behaved, maybe he's in the right about that. Aside from that, his firm stance against monothelitism in the East ensured a much stronger and enthusiastic resistance in most of the West, particularly in Africa, which was already at risk from Muslim expansion. Even though it didn't work out well for him in Constantinople, he did very much rally the troops against monothelitism. And he starts the resistance to the type of Constans, which is definitely going to be something that needs to be resisted. You know, there's, there's some points here. There are some points. Mm, so, I'm going to give him a six. 
only because I'm docking a point for being petty. Yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm going to give him a 5 because I'm impressed with the level of resistance, but it's also antagonistic enough that things are are going to get bad because of it. And so um he just set a a more negative precedent than they probably needed at that point. He's trying to set up like a I know it's not like meth dealing, but it's very much in that vein of like a desperate housewives or breaking bad sort of like drama. I, I want you to remember that you've said that when we get to our next episode because drama. Yeah, so for me, uh he's getting pass fail for the resistance. It's you know, it's it's the minimum he needs to be passable. So he will get an eleven in that category. Fructus prohibitum. Now, this depends on whether you think he deserves a point for being petty. Can we give him, like, one? A singular point? He definitely wrecked some stuff. He definitely did, and he caused the Bishop of Constantinople to freak out and destroy part of the Papal Apocrisary's palace and arrest people. And, yeah, it's not worth a two, but it's worth a one. Seculari impactum. Well... He doesn't really have a secular role here. We're not talking about the emperor being involved at this point. We will next week. For sure, this is going to have some secular impact. This is definitely going to affect people. But within the span of his papacy, he didn't really have a lot of involvement secularly. So it's got to be a zero. Fossium Sanctus. I'm going to show you I have two versions of this one that we rate on. One's kind of blurry, so I'm sending you both the larger one and the smaller one that's clearer. <laughs> to me, he looks like a petty man. That is a very petty man. It's it's a petty face. I don't know how else to describe it besides a petty face. <laughs> I don't think I've ever considered what a petty person looks like. Right? <laughs> and then you've shown me this. <laughs> Here it is. This is a petty face. His expression is just like, yeah, I'm I'm about to do something entirely petty. There are no other words, really. He looks younger than most of our popes. His hair is not entirely gray. He's still definitely got some some coloring there. A little bit. His bald head is particularly shiny, especially in the upper one. He's got a, a lot of wrinkles on his brow, though. Probably from being petty. Yeah, from having that furrow going on. So, what do you think petty face is worth? I'm going to give him, like, a four. Okay, I'm going to give it a two, because that's petty. So that'll give him a total of 1.5, is exactly what Pope John Pretty Mast scored. Hmm. I have a couple more for you to look at. The next one I'm going to send you which is usually the one from our artist who's not improving. It's definitely been upgraded a little bit, but it is also a petty face, so... That's an evil sort of petty. Mm -hmm. He's starting to improve. He must, uh, yeah, drawing people every day has helped him. I also wonder, because this one's shaded somewhat differently, if someone took the poor image and then just redid it and made it better. Yeah... And then there's also this one, which looks nothing like the other two, but it says it's him. Bald Colin Mockery. 
variations of bald Colin Mockery. We could put new wigs and stuff on him, new wigs and beards on Colin Mockery, and... You could. They'd all be the same. Pretty much. November 24th, 642, to May 14th of 649. Seven years and a score of 1.75. It's a long time, comparatively. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Yes, he is a saint. What? Yeah, he's a saint. And his feast day is May 18th. And he's not the patron saint of anything, so why, I don't know. Because often you will see throughout history that looking back on the earlier popes, they do make an effort to go back and canonize a fair bit of them. I have a feeling he was tokenly canonized later at some point because they're like, it's his turn. Oh, and they just haven't gotten around to anybody else. Yeah. We can make him the patron saint of something. Um, passive aggressiveness. Do we have a passive aggressiveness? Because I feel like we probably have one for passive aggressive, but maybe not for pettiness. He could be the patron saint of pettiness. Or was Maybe it was passive aggressive letters we had. Oh, yeah, the letters. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, he's got to be petty. Yeah, we'll make him the patron saint of pettiness. I think that's, that's, that's fitting. And that brings us to his total score, which is a 16.25. How'd he get in the teens? Bring him out. Let's go rescore him. <laughs> we can't rescore him. No, it's because he got that 11 in the, in the Papatum and Phallium. He resisted the ecthesis. He resisted oh, yeah, monopoly. He's doing good. Yeah. Um, but now I can ask you if you think he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough, because he's certainly petty enough for a papal bull. No. It would be wrong to give it to him. That is Theodore, and buckle up, because next week we are going to have a real contender. For sure. It's drama. Drama time. But on that note, before we go, we have some thank yous to make. We have a Patreon patron to absolve of her temporal sins. So thank you very much, Lauren Silver. Ego te absolvo. And we also would like to thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor as always being our inspiration. And we would like to thank the guys from Drunk Church History who invited us to come and do an episode with them which will be coming out at the end of March. I think the last week of March it will be coming out. We talked about Dante and the Commedia and the Popes in Hell. So, And uh, it was only the one guy, but that's fine. We all got diseases. <laughs> we all have diseases. We're all very sick, but we did it. And it was a lot of fun. You should go and subscribe to them and check out their other episodes. They have some great ones. They've done episodes on Anthony the Great, who we've talked about. They've done episodes on Maximus the Confessor, the Saint Cecilia. We're going to be talking a lot about some of the other episodes they did, Francis of Assisi, and of course, we'll be talking about Joan of Arc. So check them out. Their episodes are great, and they're a great compliment to what we're doing. And hopefully you will enjoy us talking about Dante as well. On that note, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for bearing with us in our weird, dark week of plagues and dogs in hospitals and everything else. 
Oh boy. Well, like one of our Twitter followers said, the Pope also had to cancel due to being ill, so can't be on all the time. That's so true. And by the way, I'm not doing a Pope watch on that because the Pope does not have the coronavirus. Oh, of course he doesn't. But people were freaking out like he did, and I was like, get a hold of yourself. If the Pope had the coronavirus, he would have already been quarantined like like that. So, you know, immediately. They did the test immediately when he had this when he pretended to sniff a little. They they've actually refused to confirm nor deny whether or not he's had the test. But you know he's had the test. So. Oh, you know he's had the test. On that note, thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Mm-hmm.